Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Cheryl Francis, co-chairman of the Corporate Leadership Center. She also co-founded the affiliated CEO Perspectives and Leading Women Executives Program. In this episode, we discuss Cheryl's journey from Toledo, Ohio, to Ithaca, New York, around the world, and to Chicago, where she resides today. Cheryl is an elite performer through and through, and she jokes that she was valedictorian of her high school, possibly because it wasn't the hardest school out there, but then she graduated top of her class at Cornell University for her undergraduate degree, as well as top of her class at the University of Chicago, where she got her MBA. So I'm pretty sure being high school valedictorian wasn't a fluke. We discuss Cheryl's rocket ship career and how it all came to a stop, literally, when she was faced with a very tough decision to stay at home with her two young sons. I admire Cheryl's courage to take a break from her career and prioritize her family. And she talks about the fear and the depression during that time, but also the growth. Cheryl created options for herself during that time including becoming an adjunct professor at the University of Chicago's Business School. Now, I don't know many or any people that review the curriculum of a whole business school and then creates a course and convinces the university that she should teach it. It's one of the many reasons why Cheryl inspires me. As we review lessons learned from her career in finance, being the CFO and a senior financial member at many other corporations, it's clear that Cheryl is in a league of her own. One person who participated in the leading women's executive program that she co-founded said, quote, this program taught me how to be happy, end quote. Doesn't get much better than that. Please enjoy this interview with the courageous, capable, and caring Cheryl Francis. Hi, Cheryl. Welcome to the show. Hi, Ian. How are you today? I am excellent. Thank you so much. It's so good to see you. And vice versa. It is a pleasure to have such a legend in the business on my show. And before we discuss your career as co-founder for the Corporate Leadership Center, as well as CFO and other senior finance roles that you've had at many major corporations, first, I'd like to rewind your highlight reel all the way back to the beginning and share with folks where you grew up. So I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, known for bowling alleys and golf courses (laughs) and not too much else with an older sister and a younger brother. We went to the public high school there. Uh, Our parents were very supportive of us, just generally, but always trying to push for us, taking advantage of having a good education. They valued that very, very highly. Maybe as a result of that, my sister and myself and my brother were all valedictorians at our high school, which was either because we were serious about education or the standard was pretty low because it wasn't the greatest high school system in the world. 
but that's where we all grew up. But I'd have to say the probably the foundational experience that I had in high school was not directly an academic experience. It was being a participant in the debate team. And that was kind of my sport at the time. There weren't many women's sports, so I got to be a debater. And it taught me some things that really stood me in good stead in all of the different places in my career, my personal life going forward. And so that was a great experience to have. So I'm sure some of the things are obvious. You learn to be a public speaker when you're in debate. So you're not afraid of standing up in the room and putting your point of view forward, which is a great skill to have, whether you're an executive or a mom or anything else. So that's a good skill. The other two maybe aren't so obvious. One is that you always have to bring a point of view with you. And so when you are a debater, part of what you do is put together a logical argument. So it's a point of view. And I've had leaders in companies that I've been in tell me or tell other people that if you're invited to a meeting and you don't speak up, you won't get invited to the next meeting. So the only reason you're there is to contribute and contributing starts with having a point of view. It doesn't mean that you won't change your mind. You're just putting your ideas out there to mix with everybody else's ideas so we can all come up with something better at the end of the day. So having a point of view, I learned in debate. And then I also learned that when you have a complicated question, which most questions are fairly complicated, that there's really no one right or wrong answer. Because in debate, you end up arguing the affirmative side of a complicated question in the first round, and hopefully you win that. Then you walk across the hall and you argue the negative side of that very same question, and hopefully you, again, win the argument. So you learn that there are certainly at least two sides to every story, although as my mother-in-law used to say, there are three sides to every story, yours, mine, and the truth. So I think it's important to realize that nobody has the whole truth, and most questions are gray, not black and white. So that's a key learning from debate that has served me in very good stead. Incredible. And it's something I've learned later in life, almost a little too late, because it was so important to not only articulate well and communicate your point, but also to understand the other point of view. And so super interesting. Now, where did you go to college and how did you pick that college? I went to Cornell University undergrad. I did have a game plan when I decided where to apply to colleges. I wanted to get an undergraduate degree in MBA as quickly as I could. And Cornell had a program where you could do your undergraduate degree, take your senior year in their MBA program, and then essentially get the undergrad degree in the MBA in five years as opposed to six or something longer than that. MIT also had a similar program. So those were the two schools that I applied to. I got into both of them. I visited both of them and just fell in love with Cornell. I think you said that your husband has an attachment to Cornell, but just absolutely beautiful. It's hard to get to, but once you get there, it is absolutely beautiful. And so I fell in love with Cornell. So that made that decision easy. And I ended up at Cornell. My husband and my kids wear that iconic green Ithaca's gorgeous shirt, because to your point, it is a really beautiful, gorgeous campus. Now, what was your first job out of college with this degree? My first job out of college was to go to graduate school. (laughs) So maybe unlike a lot of the people that you talk to, along with learning some really terrific things at Cornell, one of which was being able to be a teaching assistant, which is a place where I also gained a lot of skills that have held me in good stead in all of my different career journeys. But I also met my husband at Cornell. And so we got married the week after we graduated from Cornell and had applied to, he also wanted an MBA. So we applied to business programs together. I should mention that I started my senior year in the business program at Cornell, according to the plan, and then decided I wasn't learning anything new. It was 
like a rewind of my undergrad experience. So instead of completing the undergrad MBA plan, I graduated early. And my husband also. And we were both accepted at the University of Chicago. We both got full ride scholarships at the University of Chicago. So as you can tell, my husband Zed is a pretty smart cookie. So we got married. We did a summer job in Ithaca because it was so gorgeous. And then we started our MBA program. And we were the first married couple to do that. Although I understand there are several of them now. Broke a glass ceiling there. Well, you joke that in high school, you and your siblings were valedictorians, maybe by accident. But then you also placed first in your class at both Cornell and also the University of Chicago. So I don't think it was a fluke in high school. And so what did you guys do after getting your MBA? The benefit of being a married couple and getting your MBA at the same time is that when you graduate together and you choose your first job out of the MBA program together, you get to make life choices at the same time. And so we made a life choice, and that was to determine what geography we wanted to be in so that we were both very good. So we were going to make a lot of progress and wanted to have lots of future opportunities. So we thought if we chose a geography that would allow us to both advance in whatever our first job choice was, also change jobs without having to change geographies, that that would be a good thing. We wouldn't have to uproot each other as we went through our professional lives. And that's what we did. We chose Chicago because we both got terrific offers in Chicago. And we have now been in Chicago, including the MBA period, for 45 years. And we've been married for 45 years. So that turned out to be a really good choice. I think your question was, what was my first job out of the program? And it was to join what is now BMO, was the Harris Bank at the time. They had a consulting group within the bank that tried to take all this modern financial theory we'd been learning at the University of Chicago and apply it on behalf of the clients of the bank. So that was kind of a think tank group within the bank. And that's the group that I joined. So consulting experience, but more trying to take all of that theory and put it into practice on behalf of the clients of the bank. Probably the smartest group of people I've ever worked with. When you're getting your MBA, how did you know what to focus on? Business is so broad, but did you know where to navigate that first role? In my case, I'm a generalist. I'm not a specialist. So focus, especially academically, is hard for me because I'm interested in everything and I'm curious about everything. University of Chicago then and still today is really known for their finance program. And so I got a specialization in finance, but I also got concentrations in accounting and marketing. The other thing that was nice about University of Chicago, and not all business school programs are like this, is that if you've had a certain background, some courses that you've taken as an undergrad, for example, you can advance more quickly in the MBA program. So you can get to second level courses or even skip a course. And because of that flexibility, I was able to get a lot of concentrations and specializations because my undergraduate was also a business-related curriculum. So it allowed me to get quickly to the advanced courses and also do a variety of things. So it was a kind of perfect program for me to be involved with. And how long were you there for before transitioning to your next role? Harris Bank, not very long. The person that hired us into the bank was let go. And I don't know all of the politics and reasons behind that, but we all were hired, handpicked by him. So this small group of really smart people had a lot of affinity for this person that was now no longer going to be our boss. So I'd been there a little over a year, and everybody in the group was really trying to figure out, do we stay or do we go? And a lot were opting to go. And so I was having that same discussion with myself when I got a call out of the blue 
from the head of strategy and corporate development of a company called FMC Corporation, probably not a household name. FMC is a diversified conglomerate, so made everything from citrus juice extractors to Bradley fighting vehicles for the army to tree shakers. We mined gold and lithium. We just did everything under the sun within this industrial conglomerate. This head of strategy had been trying to help the management team think about within this company, which of the businesses were adding to the value and had a future value creating opportunity within FMC and which ones were not. They were more anchors within the portfolio. And they were trying to sort through the portfolio and had gotten the help of a finance guy from the University of Chicago to help them do that. And they'd gotten to a certain point of having a framework and a theory they were working around, but they needed somebody to come in and put it into practice, execution-oriented person. They said, Bob, okay, we know you're a theoretician, but who can we get to actually do this for us? And he said, I don't know where she is, but you should go find Cheryl Francis. And it turned out FMC was in Chicago and I was about six blocks away. So they found me, we connected, and I went over to FMC Corporation where I ended up spending about 13 years of my corporate career. Incredible. And you were, I believe, the treasurer, correct? Right. And we may get into this, but I was in and out of FMC because at the time that my children were small, I ended up leaving and then coming back. But they brought me back as the treasurer. So I leapfrogged where I'd been previously, and I was their first woman officer in that role. The treasurer's role was a really fun job. I mean, really, really fun. So why is that? FMC was not only diverse in terms of its businesses, but it's also very, very global and not just in the European capitals of the world. I mean, we were in Philippines, we were in Saudi Arabia, we were in Turkey, we were all over Latin America. So we were all over the world. And the reason I'm telling you that is that the treasurer's department was highly, highly valued within the company because we could help these business people manage risks, financing and put complicated contracts together. So we did all the foreign exchange management. We had to help them figure out political risks and put together contracts and then finance them in various ways. So highly valued within FMC. And then my team was extraordinarily international. So I had a fellow who's Argentine. We had a Brazilian. We had a Taiwanese woman. We had a fellow from the Netherlands. We had another one from Japan. And it was just this really interesting group of really global people and global thinkers doing highly valuable work for the company. And it was just a lot of fun. We all worked well together. That was just a great experience. Now, you'd mentioned you were there for a total of 13 years, but there was a break in our prior conversation. You'd shared that story, but I'd love to share with our listeners why you took that break and talk a little bit more about that. Sure. So I know in some of your questions, you ask about luck and fate and how that factors into things. So this was an instance where I was going 180 miles an hour in my career. Everything was progressing well. My husband, the same. And then I hit the wall because I came home from work one day. And my sister-in-law had been in town with her kids and had spent the day with our caregiver and our two children. And my kids were four and one at the time. And she just sat me down and said, this is not working well, the situation with your caregiver, and it needs to be addressed. And so I went in with the office the next day and I quit and came home. That was not necessarily something I'd recommend for people, but that's what I needed to do. I needed to be home. I needed to figure out what was going on, make sure that we had our kids in a safe and healthy situation, and then go forward after that. 
So I went home. And interestingly, the people at FMC were very supportive. They said, yes, sounds like you need to be home, but don't go too far away. Let's keep talking. As you sort things out, there may be ways that we can keep working together or we can be helpful to you. So they were absolutely wonderful. So I went home and discovered I'm not a full-time mom, so got to stabilize things and make things work a lot better. But my husband, Zed, and I are very active in our church. We were then still to this day. And there was a family in our church whose daughter was going to community college. We knew them really, really well. Nancy, their daughter, wonderful with kids. And so Nancy and I put together a deal where she would take care of our kids three days a week and I would be working. And then she would go to community college two days a week and I'd be home with the kids. So that worked out well. But then I had to figure out, well, this was a long time ago. Yeah, there weren't part-time flexible jobs. So I had to figure out, okay, if I have three days, what can that be? So I went back to FMC first because they said, let's keep talking. So we did. They agreed that I could do actually a job I'd had before, which was director of investor relations on a three-day-a-week basis and just be supported differently. So we tried that and pretty soon became clear that was not going to work. When you're the head of investor relations, you really work for the CEO. And our CEO just couldn't quite understand when I wasn't at his beck and call. So that was not going to work. So then I had to figure out something else three days a week. What can I do? And I went back to the University of Chicago. Bob Hamad, the finance professor who introduced me to FMC, he was now dean of curriculum at the school. So I sat down with him and said, what about if I came and taught at the business school? Not on the tenure track, but I could teach three days a week. What do you think of that? And he said, well, we don't have people that don't have PhDs teach at the University of Chicago. You don't have the right educational background. And I said, oh, that's true. I don't have a PhD. But he said, sometimes if there's a gap in the curriculum and we don't have an academic qualified to teach it, we'll bring in an adjunct, somebody that doesn't have a PhD. So I took the curriculum guide home and I designed a course that I was uniquely qualified to teach, brought it back to him, eventually got it accepted. And they put me into the business policy part of the curriculum at the University of Chicago. So I ended up teaching for about two and a half years at University of Chicago. It was a great experience. We can go into that if you want. Very creative because you're in with all these really smart people. And essentially, once they agreed I should be on the faculty, they never checked on me. So I got to whatever I wanted. It worked really, really well. And then after that period of time, I got a call from FMC. I'd never disconnected with them. I did some consulting work, kept in touch with everyone. They called me up and said, we understand Mike, your youngest, is ready to go into kindergarten. I said, that's true. And they said, well, if he's going to kindergarten, we think it's time for you to come back. And so I said, well, what do you have in mind? And they said, we've taken the fellow that's the controller of the company, and we've made him a general manager. We'd like you to come back and be our controller and our first woman officer. And I said, I've worked for the controller. I know what that job is, and I can't do it. Too much travel, too much involvement in the businesses with all the things I'm juggling. I can't do that job. But thank you for thinking about me. That was really awfully nice. And then I went back to teaching. A few days later, I got another call from FMC and they said, Cheryl, we got a new idea. We're going to take the guy that's the treasurer of the company and make him the controller. And we want you to come back and be our treasurer and our first woman officer. And I said, I've worked for the treasurer. I know that job. That's a job I can do. And so that's how I got back to FMC after spending time as a professor, which also solidified my teaching skills, which I mentioned in undergrad, I got to be a teaching assistant. I learned I'm a pretty good teacher. And now I had some more experience with it. 
And it's a skill set that I use a lot. It's in fact, what was my most successful skill set when I was a CFO. Amazing. Well, I definitely want to talk more about the teaching skill, but also just to make a comment about FMC, because for listeners who hadn't heard about the company, similar to me, I didn't know much about it, but they sound tremendously supportive. And also just the fact that they're able to monitor such talent and make sure that best efforts just to keep and retain you. So kudos to them. And so what did you do after FMC? I was treasurer at FMC. And then I got another phone call. And this was from a company called R.R. Donnelly and Sons, a printing digital management company, but mostly printing at the time. And they were looking for a CFO and they wanted to talk to me because one of their investors told them that they needed to talk to me. So the situation at Donnelly was, aside from the fact that printing was going away, which they didn't yet recognize, this was back in the mid-90s. So it hadn't gone away yet. But they were just a poorly run company in terms of allocating capital and investing well. So if you looked at return on investment year over year, Donnelly just went down and down and down and down. So obviously something was wrong. And their board and their investors decided they needed a new CFO in order to bring some financial discipline to the company so that they could reverse that. And one of their investors at the time was a gentleman named Eugene Bissell, who was a portfolio manager at Oppenheimer Capital. He owns about 10% of Donnelly. So he was a large owner and he had been an owner at FMC. And so we haven't talked a lot about this, but I was director of investor relations a couple of times. I knew Eugene very well. I also was a project manager of a huge financial transaction we did at FMC that made the investors lots of money. So Eugene Vassell made out very well as being an investor in FMC and we knew each other. And he understood that I understood what a disciplined company looked like. And I could hopefully bring that to Donnelly. So he said, you can talk to whoever you want to, but make sure you talk to Cheryl Francis. Donnelly also located in Chicago. So an easy trip down the street to go have a lunch. We liked each other. And I ended up as the CFO at Donnelly, which is a role that I had for five years. So I can spend a lot more time on your roles there, but also I want to spend a bit of time also in terms of the organization that you created called the Corporate Leadership Center. And the listeners would have heard a bit about your interest in teaching and also the skill of oration, communication, debate. But can you share with our listeners first what the Corporate Leadership Center is, what the genesis behind that was? So first of all, you have to understand I left Donnelly at this point in time. I was there five years. I worked for three different CEOs during that period of time was in turmoil much of that time, obviously needed to find a future when printing didn't have a future. We managed to put financial discipline in place, but the strategic issues were not really being fully addressed. And I was exhausted. So I just left Donnelly. While I was at Donnelly, I had a terrific person who was my banker. She was the head of commercial lending at Northern Trust. Her name was Sheila Penrose. And also, we'd done some things together in the city, civically. So we launched the Women's Initiative for the United Way, done some other things. So anyway, Sheila and I first met each other professionally, but then figured out we worked really well together. We liked each other. And about the time that I was leaving Donnelly, Sheila was retiring out of the Northern Trust. So, of course, we had breakfast one morning because that's what you do with people that you like. And so Sheila and I sat down for breakfast and looked each other in the eye and said, you know what? We just spent the last 25 years doing what everybody else wanted. What do we want to do? And so we decided to create Corporate Leadership Center. So the genesis behind it is Sheila and I had both been corporate executives. We both sat on public company boards and still do. So had to worry about succession in that context. And we thought there were some things that would have made us better executives 
but they simply didn't exist. And so since they didn't exist, we should create them, of course. And so that's what we did. So Corporate Leadership Center, first of all, you should know is a nonprofit. So we're all about impact, but it's a nonprofit that was created by a banker and a CFO. So we're extraordinarily profitable as a nonprofit. Since day one, we've been positive cash flow enterprise, and that makes us very sustainable and able to grow and pursue our ideas. So idea number one, if we're thinking about things that would have helped us be better executives, everybody that reports to the CEO of a complex organization needs to embrace the agenda of the enterprise. So you can grow up as a functional expert like I did in finance. You can run a piece of the business like Sheila did at the Northern Trust. But when you report to the CEO, you have to embrace the agenda of the enterprise. And that is the same regardless of the company that you're in. Every CEO and senior team are worried about the same issues. Growth and innovation would be one of them. Becoming a customer-focused organization, things like that, that cut across functions. And there was no learning experience that was put together to take these senior leaders and give them that experience and the enterprise agenda among peers who are thinking about the same issues, but thinking about them very differently. So that was our first program. It's called CEO Perspectives. And people that come into the program need to be nominated by their CEO. So it's not open enrollment. And they're with us six times over the course of the year in concentrated sessions. And each time they're with us, they see four different sitting CEOs. So people that are in the hot seat. And they also get exposure to academics and experts to push the envelope on these CEO agenda items. And then the third source of learning is that they are part of a peer group of other very seasoned, accomplished C-suite executives, and they learn from each other. So that's CEO Perspectives. We started it in 2005. We're still running it to this day. We had a session last week. We had the CEOs of Hyatt, Eli Lilly, ITW, an industrial company, and Ulta Beauty. <laughs> so a variety of companies, very different styles among the CEOs. And so these senior leaders get to see lots of different ways to be a very successful CEO, which opens their viewpoint about what's possible for themselves and for their companies. So that's CEO perspectives. Once that was successful, it's a money generator. And that allowed us then to invest in our second idea. And since Sheila and I are both women, obviously, the second idea is focused on women. It's called Leading Women Executives. And it's targeted a little lower in the organization than CEO perspectives. And we say it's at the inflection point where women move from management to leadership, which is where a lot of women either stall out or companies lose their female talent. And so we worked with the companies and the women to pull more women through that inflection point into senior leadership. And that program has been running since 2009, also really, really successfully. We have over 800 alums at this point. Both programs, once people go through, we never let go of them. So we call them fellows from CEO perspectives, ambassadors from the women executives, but essentially we have a very active alumni group as well. So you can keep learning and your network keeps growing. It's just wonderful. That is wonderful. Can you share a little bit more about the Women Executives Program? What does it discuss? You mentioned a bit more about the CEO's Perspective Program, but what is it when you think about that transition for a woman's career going from senior to real leadership roles? So first of all, it's research-based, our curriculum, because what we have learned is that exercising skills and behaviors as a woman has a twist from what it does for a male counterpart, if you want to be successful. So I'll give you an example. If my husband and I are both trying to conduct a negotiation to get to a certain outcome, we actually need to approach it differently. 
in order to get to that same point of success. Because I'm received differently as a woman than he is. He can get away with some things that I can't, for example. And so it's those twists of looking at those behaviors around really important executive skills that we work with the women around, skills and behaviors. And so what we did through the research was to determine what are those leadership competencies that people need to be able to demonstrate in order to get into those higher roles? And then how are they different between men and women so that you can give the woman that step forward that is going to be most helpful for them? So the curriculum is designed around those leadership competencies as opposed to CEO perspectives, which is around issues, the enterprise issues. It's constructed differently. So the women come in as a cohort, not as single individuals. So they can go back into their company with a learning group. A senior executive from every company is assigned as an advocate for each of the women. So they can have conversations with an advocate as they go through somebody who has a seat at the table in their organization. Because even though Sheila and I hoped to benefit the individuals who go through our programs, and we know that we do, In the women's program, we have this under-the-radar ambition to also change their companies. And in order to do that, we need to not have just the woman focused on it, but also these senior leaders. And so what we find is in leading women executives, companies that send one cohort of three or four women, that's what we expect each time, will send multiple cohorts. So 80% of them send multiple cohorts. And then you have lots of women with this experience and more and more senior executives with this same experience And that's when we start to see change in the organization. So we realize as a third party, we have to be a little bit indirect about how all of that happens. If the listeners are saying, gosh, sign me up for the leading women's executive program, you have to be nominated for the CEO's perspective. But where can companies or executives learn more about either program? They can go to our website, of course, corporateleadership.org. That's where they should go. And they'll get a description of the programs. They'll see who all the sponsored companies are. And the women's program, which is also in session right now, back in session in person after being hybrid for a while, I think 70% of the women that attend our program, which is based in Chicago, are coming from outside of the Chicago area. And we even have two women from the UK, one from the Netherlands, and one from Brazil this time. So it's a worthwhile experience for these women to be coming in and out. And it's really great to have them all with us and corporate sponsors. Incredible. I'll make sure to link that to the show notes as well. You sit on a few corporate boards. It's Aon, it's Morningstar, and HNI Corporation. Can you share your evolution in terms of when you wanted to be on corporate boards? And if you could share maybe one or two surprising things as a board member that maybe others may not know. My first board experience was to serve on the school board, which is an elected office. It's a K through eight program, so little people. And the PTA were holding their meetings during the day, and I couldn't attend them because I was working during the day, but I could attend school board meetings because they were at night. And so when my oldest entered kindergarten, I ran to go on the school board, thinking that that was a place. Again, I love education. We've had that conversation. I believe positive change can occur through education. So this would be a way that I could contribute in a way that my kids would benefit as well as their kids in the place where we live. So that was my first board experience. I bring that up because now having served on corporate boards, nonprofit boards, lots of different boards, there's some commonalities around how boards exercise their power and their responsibilities. And it's all about governance, but governance looks very similar, whether it's a school board or a corporate board. So what it did for me was to give me a chance to practice and to get some confidence that when I was around any board table, 
I could hold my own, have a point of view, know what's going on, that kind of thing. So that was my first board, was the school board. And then had gone on to be on the public company boards that you've mentioned. I don't think a lot of people understand how boards operate. So probably a lot of it would be surprising, I guess, because boards, they're for governance. They're not there to manage. So it's rather an inactive role. And so we're there to advise. There are a few things that we're responsible for, like choosing the CEO, really, really important thing. But most things were there just to help management think things through so that they make better choices. And there are some things that we have to approve. So I guess the thing that I would say is maybe a surprising or certainly things people should know. One of my fellow board members used to say that a good board member plays well with others and doesn't scare easily. And the reason is that boards don't do anything as individuals. We are a collective. We work as a group. And so you have to be able to get along with each other in order to be effective in the role of board members. And then we only get the decisions that are the really difficult ones because everything else management takes care of. So I've had to fire a CEO, for example. That's not an easy decision or a crisis happens and the board gets pulled in. So you need to be able to play well with others and you need not to scare easily because you're going to get pulled into the breach often at completely unexpected times and you need to be prepared to be there on behalf of the company and all of its stakeholders. I'm so glad I asked because to a layperson like me, one would think that governance and management are synonymous. And the way you break it out is really helpful because I think some or many actually think they're the same thing in the same type of role. So that was super helpful. We talked about education and teaching. You were such a phenomenal teacher that I could ask you so much more about the corporate leadership program because I know there's so many gems in there that I would learn from. But I will, for our listeners, fast forward to the questions I ask everybody, starting with who or what inspires you? I'm inspired by people who help people help themselves. And that's probably that education theme coming through. And it could be anybody. Uh, So just to give an example, my husband said we're both very involved civically and philanthropically. So he, until recently, was the board chair of an organization called Bridge Communities, which is a homeless transition program in the Chicago area. And the whole model around Bridge is that you take a family, typically a single mom with some kids, and you surround them with services. You put them in an apartment for two years. You have a mentor team, which are volunteers that work with the family intensely over that period of time to help the mom usually take care of whatever debts, whatever issues she had coming into the program, get a better job, kids get in a better educational situation so that when they leave two years forward, they can sustain and thrive and move forward. So it's that kind of thing. Any organization, any person that can help other people help themselves, I think that's a great model. So that's what inspires me. That's where I try and put my effort as well. You mentioned mentor. Did you have a mentor or role model growing up yourself? when you're younger or even in your professional career? Yeah, I'd say my first real role model was my mother-in-law. So let me tell you a little bit about her because she was just this really wonderful person. Her name was Mildred Francis. She's no longer with us, but she was a nurse. And during World War II, she was a Navy nurse. So she was at Pearl Harbor. So you can imagine what that was like. We have a Bible in our home signed by all of the Navy folks that she took care of at Pearl Harbor. 
Nurse Snyder, that was her name at the time. When I met her, she was the nursing supervisor of a huge county hospital in Fort Lauderdale, which is where Zed, my husband, grew up. His dad was disabled, so she was the wage earner for the family and had the two kids. She had my husband and his big sister. And she was probably the most courageous, capable, caring person that I have ever known. So my own mother loved us all, did her best, but she didn't work out of the home and she couldn't quite figure out my sister who went to MIT, (laughs) also had a very successful career. She couldn't figure out what we were doing, didn't compute for her. But Mildred, Zed's mom, understood completely. So she was someone I could talk to. I could see how she conducted herself. We'd have early morning cups of coffee. And when I was down at their house and she'd tell me about how the doctors would try and run over the patients and she stood up for them because that's what she did. And she was just this really, as I said, caring, courageous, extraordinarily capable person. And to see all of that in one person and still being able to raise a great family, be active with her friends, etc. She was just an amazing woman and very inspiring. Wow, that sounds incredible. Well, Mildred Francis, I am better off having known her story. Thank you for sharing. Now, you've done so much professionally and also now that I think the listeners have heard in the past half hour a lot personally in terms of giving back to the community and getting involved locally. What are you most proud of? So I'm sure this won't surprise you because you also have two sons. I'll split it into two pieces. One is definitely my children, which you'd like to hope some of it is because of what you and your husband did. But I don't know, it seems to be a lot of it is what they did themselves. So my sons are both very resourceful, very caring people, very adventurous people. They try things. And somehow or other, they have both found absolutely wonderful life partners. So their wives are incredible and they are great parents. And so to be able to see that from my perspective is like, okay, something's right with the world after all. This is really, really great. I don't think I get to take responsibility, but it's really great to see. The other story I'll share is with regard to our Leading Women Executives Program. So the the legacy that Sheila and I have built around these two programs is definitely something that's very powerful. I mentioned it's a nonprofit. We never paid ourselves for any of the work we did here. So our payback is in seeing the people that we touched advance, help other people, push their organizations forward, all of that. So an, an alumni gathering of the Leading Women Executives Group several years ago, we just had an open mic situation and asked the women to share whatever they still resonated with them. They've been out of the program for a few years. What stayed with them that they could share with the rest of the group? so that we'd all learn from that. And as they passed the mic around, they got to one woman and she took the mic and said, you taught me how to be happy. And we said, okay, then we did something right. Wow. Yeah. So we know we've had a huge impact and particularly on the women that have gone through the women's program. So that just encapsulated it all. I was interested in the leading women's executive program before, and now I'm just going to apply immediately because I don't know what you're teaching there, but what feedback and how powerful is that? One thing is, as the listeners are hearing your story, and it sounds like you're so capable and also caring and compassionate, your life story sounds wonderful. And the name of the show is about growth from failure. I usually ask my guests, 
at the end of the conversation of what struggle, adversity, or failure that they can share. And your personal and professional career generally seems so amazing and up and to the right in terms of a chart. Can you share maybe your biggest growth moment? And I'm assuming that includes some type of struggle or adversity or failure, but if you can share with our listeners that big growth moment. I don't think of my career trajectory as up and to the right. It's been very unusual. And maybe one of the growth moments that people could relate to most was when I stepped off of the corporate track the first time because I thought that something at home needed to be addressed, which was very painful. And that was scary, among other things, because I'd been on a mission. And then all of a sudden, I was off my mission immediately, shockingly. That was really hard. And I had to work through what my priorities really were. And what could fit into them? I had to be very creative because no options really existed. I had to create my own options to figure out where to take that. And so that was a period where I felt very sad, very depressed until I came out and said, okay, where are we going to go with this now? So that was a struggle for me and a huge growth moment to your question. So what did I learn? Well, I learned I had a lot more options than I understood when you're sitting in your cubicle doing your job you probably don't understand all of the things you could be doing. So all of a sudden, I could see an array of things that were possible that I couldn't see from where I was sitting before. I learned that. I learned that a lot of people wanted to help me. So you talked about the people at FMC. They were wonderful, but nobody knew that (laughs) because there just weren't these situations back then. And so they got to find out how great they were for themselves, which is super. But I also got to find out And then Bob Hamada, he opened the doors for me. All these people were ready to help me. All I had to do was give them a bit of a sense of direction of where I needed them to go for that to happen. So that was a huge learning. So I need to ask for help more often and probably sooner than I do. Then I learned to perfect my teaching skills. When I was a CFO at Donnelly, a company of 30,000 people, It wasn't enough for me to be disciplined about making decisions. I needed to get all of them disciplined about making decisions. So that was a teaching exercise. How do you teach 30,000 people how to make better decisions? So those skills have really stood me in very good stead in many different venues. And then I was able to be completely creative. As I said, once they agreed that I would be on faculty, they never checked on me. So I got to do whatever I wanted. And it was all of these really smart people that I could knock on their doors and get their advice. And then I learned, even though I talk about teaching as a skill set, I'm not a teacher. I'm a doer. And so I use teaching to get things done. I learned that when I was on the faculty at University of Chicago, that that was not a sustainable role for me. I needed to be back where I could make an impact. And then the last thing I think I learned from that experience that I didn't learn immediately, it's great to be looking back, is that my children, the people I was really worried about during all of this, turned out to be fantastic people. And so that's an important message for people who are earlier in raising their families. Kids are really resilient. And I haven't asked them actually what they took away from that period of time. They were so little, but they have turned out fabulously well. So sometimes people feel guilty. So my message here is do not feel guilty. Your kids are learning. They're resilient. If you're in there trying to give them the best you can, they're going to turn out great just like mine. I have so many comments about that. Going back to your kids, I think it's important to share that because so many working moms, you had mentioned in your career how you had to hop off and why. And so at the ages of one and four, 
what that means for you. And they're too young and maybe they don't remember, at least your one-year-old doesn't, but how hard that is as a decision, right? And here you have your amazing, thriving career. That must have been such a hard choice. And so I thank you for sharing that story because I think a lot of working moms struggle with that and saying, you know what? It is a tough decision. And so you made that choice. But also going back to how you got to be a teacher at the University of Chicago, I don't think many people look at the curriculum, study it, and then look at the gapped and hold and then create a curriculum and present it. So that is not only good teaching skills, but to your point, doers. You are a doer (laughs) through and through. And I was desperate. (laughs) Desperation could also be a good motivator. It reminds me a bit when you mentioned about prompting people to do, and that's one of your skill sets is to encourage people. It reminds me of Carol Dweck, who is a Stanford professor in the field of psychology. And the reason my show is called Growth from Failure is because of an event that she did and we hosted her. And she said, if I could change your life is to ask your kids or your colleagues or your partner is to ask them, what did you fail at today? And she said, one, it'll remove that negative association with failure, but two, it prompts them to do because you can't fail unless you try or an attempt. And so to do something means that it's possible to fail, yes, and struggle, but it's a growth moment. I'm inspired by doers because I know how hard that is to just literally go out there and do because it meant you crossed over that fear factor. So massive kudos to you. One question I've added to the growth and failure questions is about success. Because on paper, so many people have an amazing storied professional career or personal journey that is successful. But I started asking the guests directly what success means for them. And I've loved the answer. So I'd love to ask you, what does success mean for you? Success for me is positive impact. That's probably pretty clear based on the conversation we've had and in a sustainable way. So if I can be putting my financial resources, my time, my energy, et cetera, in places where I can have a positive impact on other people in a way that allows them to then carry that forward and hopefully have a positive impact on other people beyond that, that's success to me. So there's a sense of sustainability, there's a sense of positive change, and there's a sense of helping a group of people be better off. So I'm the chair of the board of the United Way of Metropolitan Chicago right now as well. And we're doing a lot of work in some really difficult communities in the city. And it's around that same model that the community itself sets the agenda and then we help them get it done so they can carry it forward. It's this idea of sustainable, positive impact. Incredible. I'd like to ask you about luck because it's something similar to the success question that that a guest raised and they said, I'd love to hear your guest perspective about luck. And so if you could share whether the bad luck, the good luck, but how luck has impacted your life either personally or professionally. Obviously, I was lucky to be born into the family I was born in. So you kind of start with good luck at the very beginning of the story. But I do believe, as others have said, that you make your own luck in many cases. And I think the way you can increase the odds of good luck is by developing options, connecting with people, putting bread on the water out there in a variety of different ways, and seeing what happens. So I think you can cultivate good luck. But I also think that it's about how you respond. So luck can be good, luck can be bad, and you can't control that. But what you can control is response to whatever that happenstance is. And you've seen that in my story as well. So you take advantage of the doors that open. And when the doors are slammed in your face, you figure out what do I learn from that and where do I go from here? And I've had both happen to me, as I'm sure you have too. But the choice of what I do is my choice, and I don't lose control of that. You have a lot on your plate. You're so busy with the boards that you're on and also all the philanthropic activity you're doing. What's next for Cheryl Francis? 
So now you have to get to my life philosophy. So that's not a question that I answer well and never have, because I think that life is a discovery process. And so the way I think about it is you're facing a stream and you've got stepping stones to get you across to the other side, but you can't see all the way across. So you take the first step and then you look around and you can see the next step more easily. And then you take the next step and then you can see and then you get across. So as opposed to somebody that has a five-year plan, which I don't have, I think of it as a discovery process. I'm going to be involved in things that are of great interest to me. And I think good place to be putting my energy and that's going to lead to something else. And I have three little grandbabies right now. So some of my energy is directed that way. I've got some things going on in the city of Chicago. And so there's that and the corporate stuff. So as I mentioned early on, I'm a generalist. I'm not a specialist. I like having variety. And then from that variety, the path forward becomes more visible. So I don't have a specific answer about what is next, except that I'm going to keep taking steps and it'll lead me somewhere interesting. I love it. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining me today. I had a blast and also learned a ton. And I did as well. So thank you again. And thanks for doing this podcast series. I've listened to many of them, as you know, and I learned a lot too. So hopefully somebody will learn something from this one. 